How are you doing this weekend? Doing good. Good to see you. It's great to see you joining us at our campuses as well. If we've never met one another before, my name is Sean Wood, and I'm one of the teaching pastors. And we are continuing in our series this weekend called Love Songs. We've taken the last three weekends leading up to this to take a look at the book of Song of Songs, one of the most romantic, uh, non-biblical or biblical stories that exist. And we've been just looking at what is a real committed relationship look like and how do we get there and how do we find the love of our life and and this has been a great great series um we're going to wrap up this series next weekend as pastor greg is going to be back and he is going to be taking questions from you you can give us those questions on the city or you can also go to the city and find this information, but I'll give it to you now as well, where you can text in questions, and we'll be taking those live uh, next week. And if you text in to 22333, so that's the number you're texting to, and just in your message, put love songs, one word, followed by your questions, and those are anonymous on the city, of course. They're not anonymous. Uh, you send in all your questions, and then Pastor Greg is going to tackle them next week, and it's going to be a great uh, conclusion to our series. And then this weekend... We're going to look back on the heroine of our story as she in chapter 8. In fact, you might want to turn to chapter 8 right now in Song of Songs and uh, go ahead and find that. It'll be on the uh, screens as well. But she in chapter 8 looks back and reflects on love. She starts to reflect on how did we get here to this place? She's looking at a memory. And memories are great. In fact, I have a memory that's kind of seared into my brain. And here, here's what the memory is. Um, when I was in 12th grade and she was in 11th grade, we were at a fifth quarter. And that's uh, kind of something we did after the football games. The FCA would meet at this man's house down on the, the river where he lived. And we had this fifth quarter deal. And we were there. And uh, just previously, like a couple of weeks before, a couple of months before, rather, I had been able to pray with her to receive Christ. And she had become a Christian. And, and over the course of a couple of weeks, I had been counseling with her because she had a boyfriend. And so um, I was kind of giving her some counsel on how she needed to dump this guy because uh, there was a couple of problems with him. One, I didn't think he was a Christian, and two, he wasn't me. And so um, as we were doing that, we got to this FCA, this fifth quarter, and there she was up kind of far away, but she was there with her boyfriend. And so I said to my friend Chip, I said, hey, let's go over. I want to talk to Connie. And so we started to walk over to where she was, and I, I got up close to her, and uh, when I got there... I should have said to Chip, I should have said, hey, Chip, I, do you know Connie? I wanted you to meet her. That's not what I said. What I actually said is, hey, Chip, I wanted you to meet my future wife. Yeah, awkward for me and the boyfriend, actually, uh, kind of there. And so I said that. And I thought, Why, where did that come out of? But then I decided that it was prophecy. And so I continued... I continued to counsel and kind of get her to uh, kind of break up with this guy, and she did. The following Friday, on October the 11th, 1991, actually, she broke up with her boyfriend, who was her ride home from the football game. And so being the gentleman that I was, I said, well, somebody's got to offer a ride home. She might as well be me. So I offered her a ride home. Only deal was I didn't drive to the game. So then I had to go and tell Chip, my friend again, hey, she's going to ride home with us. And so uh, she did. And on the way home, here's what happened. I uh, put my hand, we were three people in the back of the car, so we were kind of close together. And, and I grabbed that third guy really late and said, hey, get in here so we'll be close together. And... Uh, <laughs> On the ride home, I put my hand down the seat and I let our pinkies kind of touch a little bit. Because here's what I knew. If someone's pinky touched your pinky and you don't like them, it's kind of awkward. So you kind of move your hand a little bit. But if, if your pinkies touch and you kind of like me, you'll just let your hand hang out there a little bit. 
So, Rico Suave. So I, uh, I put my hand there and just kind of let our pinkies touch for a little bit. And she didn't move her hand. And our pinkies just kind of kept uh, touching. And so I went, okay. I called her when I got home. I said, hey, I want to come over to your house on Sunday. And I want to ask your dad for permission to take you on a date. And so on October 13th, 1991, I went over to Connie's house. And I said, I'd like to take your daughter on a date. And we did. We went to Aaron's Deli in downtown Charleston, where the sandwich was this big. And it's because it was so tall, I was embarrassed to open my mouth that big to eat in front of her. So I just kind of picked at it like a little girl. And I still... I don't know how I got past that moment with her, but she, she kept dating me. And here's, here's the deal. When I think back on that memory, I can remember she was wearing exclamation perfume, really cheap perfume, but she was wearing exclamation. I can, when I smell exclamation perfume, I can remember that. I can remember that she was chewing cinnamon gum. I can remember the smell of the gum that was coming across the table because that memory is seared into my brain. It's a great memory. And here's what the heroine of our story is doing in chapter 8. She's looking back on the memories that made this love relationship because memories are the backbone to a great love story. Now, because this is poetry, I'm going to take a little bit of poetic license. And I just kind of imagine her a few years into her marriage. She's sitting on the back porch with a cup of tea and she's just thinking back. And we're going to enter and into her thinking and her reflecting on love and how she got to where she is. So let's jump right in. We've got a lot to cover. Eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. She says, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. Now, at first glance, this seems a little uh, strange. Sounds like she wants to kiss her brother. Um, That's not what it is. It's not a little Kentucky come to the Middle East at all. It's not what's going on. But what's actually happening here is in this culture, um, there was no public display of affection, even for married couples or courting couples that was really seen as appropriate. And so she is saying, I want to be affectionate with you. I can't be right now because it's not the proper time, but I really want to be because in that society, if you were siblings, like my little four and a half year old girl and my little 18 month old little boy, they kiss each other, they hug each other, they love on each other and it's seen as very innocent and very appropriate. And so she's saying, I wish that you were my brother because I want to be affectionate with you, but I know that's not the time. But what we see first about this love relationship is that love is passionate. I think we've seen throughout this whole series, and if you've been reading along in the book, that you've seen that there is no escaping the passion that must exist in a real love relationship like this one. In fact, in verse 2, she continues to kind of flirt with him a little bit. She says, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. This is the equivalent of a midday text from your spouse that says, I can't wait till you get home dot 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 you know the best part of that message is dot 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 i tell you that's a loss of productivity right there because what happens is every guy goes do i have any time off because if i do i don't have any time off we can take the pay cut i'm going home right now and then she continues in verse three she gives him some instruction. She says, his left hand is under my head. She's imagining back of how it would have been if she could have shown him this passion. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Here's a question I have here. Is it okay for a woman to give instruction to her husband about romance? Is this okay? This is what she's doing. She's giving some instruction about romance. I would say not only is it um, appropriate, but I would advise it. Because I'm a guy and I can just tell you, we are clueless 
We have no idea what romance means. You say, I want you to be romantic. And we go, okay, all right. Uh, And then we go, I don't don't know what that means. I have no clue. So she's saying this is what it would look like if you were to be romantic. And then the bigger point here is that I love is she seeks to fuel the passion in their relationship. She is throwing kindling on the fire. She's saying, I'm going to make sure this passion continues to burn. I'm going to be a part of that. And then, so she says, love is passionate. She also says in verse 4, love is patient. She stops with this talking about all this passion. And she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now, we've talked about this verse quite a bit, but it's worth noting that it seems at this moment she realizes who her audience is. And she realizes that young girls, girls just just behind her in the relationship journey are going to be reading this. I can imagine that it was pretty popular reading during the time. And she has a Titus 2 moment with them. Remember a couple weekends ago when Pastor Jeff looked at Titus chapter 2 in our Outward Bound series? There was a passage there that you've got in your note sheet and it's Titus 2, 3 through 5. It says, Older women... Likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God would not be reviled. She is taking a moment as an older than some people, older wife, to look back and to speak to these daughters of Jerusalem, these young women, and say, hey, it's not the proper time. Passion is awesome, but this you need to be patient in and wait. And why do we need to be patient? Because love is personal. That's why the highs of love are so high and the lows and the pain of romantic love are so painful is because we are literally knit together in this personal relationship we are tied together and when we say you ripped my heart apart it's because it's not it's not just figuratively but it's literal that their love relationship has the personal ability to rip our hearts apart and she looks back on this personal moment in their relationship Scholars would agree that this is either their first date that she's thinking back on, and some would even say that this is perhaps the the consummation of their marriage that she's looking back on. But she says in verse 5, Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. She looks back on this good memory like I did earlier, this memory that's seared into her brain. If you're married, why don't you grab the hand of your spouse just for a moment? It's okay, I know we're in church, but you can do that. Just reach over, grab the hand of your spouse, and just let your mind wander back to a good moment, to a good memory in your life. Here's a principle that we can learn during this situation, is try and remember more of the good memories than the bad memories. Try and find the good memories behind you and grab a hold of those and feed them. Feed the good memories. Laugh about them. Talk about them often. Tell the same stories over and over again in your home and just love each other and talk about the way that it happened that you found that love together. Because the truth is, is what we feed is what will grow. If we feed the bad memories, then the bad memories will grow. If we feed the things that annoy us about our spouse, then that's the things that will grow. But she decides to look back fondly on this memory that was something that she wanted to feed because she wanted it to grow. Why did she want it to grow? Because the next thing we see is that love 
is priceless. It's priceless. You can't pay for the amount of love that they're showing in this story. The Beatles had it right. You can buy me a lot of things, but you can't buy love. Look at verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, if he offered everything he's worth, he would be utterly despised. I was an English lit minor in college and I love poetry and I decided to include this whole section because to me this is an unbelievable piece of prose from this woman who is saying to this man, I want to be seen as a prized and priceless possession. You know, possession and jealousy, like all human emotions, can go painfully wrong and especially in relationships, we can see that happen often. You've probably seen it go bad in your life at some point. But also we see in the Bible that God is a jealous and possessive God. So it is an attribute of God to be jealous. It is an attribute of God to have this possession. And so these are attributes that we can kind of start to emulate righteously in our lives. She talks of a very personal seal here. And this seal was kind of an imagery of ownership. The seal on his heart and the seal on his arm said that this is ownership combined with this imagery of strength and jealousy, righteous possession and jealousy. When possessiveness and jealousy work out righteously in our lives, here's what it looks like. It looks like a husband who says, I want to be everything for you when it comes to romance. I want you to only have eyes for me. I don't want you to have to find romance through some other man. I don't want you to have to find romance through some novel. I don't want you to find romance through a chick flick. I want to meet your needs romantically. Because you are mine and you are worth way more than I would want to squander or give away to someone. You are priceless to me. It is a woman who says, you're my man. Don't look at him that way. Don't flutter your eyes at him because you're my man. There's an ownership. There's a possession that's righteous like the possession of God. A possession, a possessive love that sees your spouse as a prized possession produces a strong love that cannot be quenched, as the poetry talks about, by any waters that would come in. These destructive waters try to come in, but they cannot quench this love. Now, things will come into our lives. Passion will be dampened. Hard times will seem to prevail many times. Having been married for coming up on 15 years now, I can tell you that Connie and I have had some very difficult times in our marriage. It has not been all ups. There's been lots of painful lows. But there has been no amount of trial and no amount of water that could quench and dampen that fire because it's passionate and it's priceless. And we have decided that we will do whatever it takes to continue to fuel that passion because of that pricelessness. But you may say, but Sean, here's our story. We're roommates, but we're no longer lovers. We we cohabitate, but the truth is, is we hate each other. We, We don't even speak. We love our children, And so that's why we're together. But when they're gone, we are through. Here's the sad part. Do you know that statistics show that most marriages don't really hit any kind of healthy stride until about 9 to 15 years into the marriage? 
It takes that long for you and I to lose all the sin and selfishness in our lives that we've accumulated, all the baggage that we've accumulated and learn how to be the selfless person. And so it's good in those first years. Believe me, it was great. And some of you are going, hey, we're having a good time. But it gets hard. And when it gets hard, oftentimes what couples do is they go, oh, well, we're not compatible. We just, we just, we can't make this. And so early on, six, seven, eight years in, they go, well, we'll just bail and we'll start over. And then they start over and there's two flaws with that. One is you bring you into the relationship and you're at least 51% of the problem right now. And so that's a problem that happens when you start over. And then the second thing is not only do you bring you, but you bring someone else into the relationship that has baggage and sin and selfishness in their lives as too. Now I know some of you are saying, but Sean, I know you, you th- say you've been through some hard times, but my spouse and I, we right now, we are going through hell. You just, you don't even understand it. I would quote from Winston Churchill who says, if you're going to go through hell, don't stop. <laughs> you want to you get to the other side of that. And then I would paraphrase that and say, and don't go start over to go through hell all over again when you're three quarters of the way through. Some of you are almost there. The victory is on the other side. You just need to push through. Don't give up. It's priceless. So how do you treat something that is passionate, patient, personal, and priceless? You protect it. Love is a protector. Look at verse 8. We start to see this protection that she had in her life. Verse 8 says, we have a little sister. The others are speaking now, and she has no breast. That just means she's young. She's, She's still a little girl. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? Here we have what we believe is her brothers probably stepping up saying, hey, we're going to protect our sister or it is um, the community around her. But either way, she's looking back and remembering when people stepped into her life to watch over her and her purity and to protect her at a tender age. They continue. They have a plan. They say, if she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I love this imagery. The brothers say, we will fortify the walls, these strong walls that she's put up in her life, and we will fortify them and we will honor them if she's a wall. And if she is a door, we'll put cedar over the doors and we'll help enclose it. And these are precious materials, cedar and silver. We're not just like finding a two by four on the side of the road. These were royal treatments. They're saying, we're going to block the walls. We're going to adorn the walls. We're going to block the doors of this little girl in our life so that no one can get in and steal her her purity with royal materials. She's not placed in a prison like a criminal. She is protected like a precious treasure. So they say, we're going to give honor to the wall that she's built. And if that door is to open, we're going to put stuff in front of it to keep it from opening again and not allow anyone to come in. A word to daddies and brothers and uncles and cousins. It is our job to protect our priceless treasures. And we are to train our little boys to become men who respect the boundaries so that our girls can be treasures and not targets. And so that our little boys can be protectors and not predators. We teach our little boys with valor and with integrity and honor to respect girls, to respect women. And we teach our little girls that we're going to help you put up some walls in your life and we're going to help enclose those doors that so easily open that let predators in to your life. 
she replies about this. She says, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. She says, when I grew up, I got older, I was a wall. And then she says what the result was. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. You see, she says, I decided to be a private garden for my husband and not a public park. And when I did that, it was attractive to him. See, ladies, regardless of how it appears, good men are attracted to godly women. Good men are attracted to godly women. Godly men are attracted to godly women. If you attract a man with sin, you will have to sin even more to keep him. And then because this is his character, he will be attracted to other sin as well. So you will see a man who gets involved in pornography and going to clubs that he shouldn't go to and in affairs because you will become boring one day. And when you do, he will have to go find some sin that attracts him again. But if you attract him with godly character, you're priceless. And no man can turn that down. They, a man wants a priceless woman. And she talks about that in 11 and 12. I'll just kind of paraphrase it there. You have it. She says, Solomon, all of your vineyards, all of your land, it's worth a bunch of money. I know you've got hundreds and thousands of vineyards. But my garden, my purity, it's mine and mine alone. I have got confidence that my brothers have helped me build into. It's mine and it's priceless. It's worth more than you could ever imagine. That's a confident woman who says, yeah, I'm pure. And I'm confident in the fact that I've done the right thing thing and because of this protection in her life she has this confidence and now this is where i'd like to camp out just for for a little while is to stay right here and, and don't be deceived by your notes we're not almost done that's you know we, it looks like we are but i'd like to camp out here but how do we get to this place how do we protect our young girls and for that matter how do we raise up boys who will be protectors and not predators how do we get a marriage that looks like this what she points back to her childhood. She goes all the way back to her childhood and that's where she looks to see that. And she says, uh, you know, I see that when I was a little girl, these men, these brothers in my life, they stepped in and they helped to protect me. And so we start back at childhood. Now for some of you, that's discouraging. Because you say, well, how about me? Is it too late? I mean, I, I haven't really been pure to this point. And I'm, I'm not a child anymore, Sean, let me tell you. I'm not innocent anymore but I can't really start over. But you can. You see, that's the beauty of the gospel. It's never too late to change. Change can happen. Regeneration can happen. And there's testimony after testimony to that fact here. But the best case scenario is that you would start with raising and protecting children who love, adore, and worship Jesus. Not just little morally pure children who one day will leave it because they don't understand why, but children who love Jesus and worship him and adore him. And for that, there is no better tool for accomplishing that purpose than the family. The family is where we are able to do that. Now, for some of you, you say, well, what about me? I'm not in a family. I don't have any kids uh, or, or I'm not a part of a family. I moved here and I'm alone. But see, this affects every single one of us, married, unmarried, with children, no children, because as the church, we are a family. And so as a church, we are to bond together to protect one another. We are to bond together to be like those brothers, that community around this little girl. And so what I love about this story is that what we see here in this story and in that statement that the church is family, there's hope too for single moms. See, I was raised for 12 years of my life by a single mom. 
And I can tell you that I understand what it's like to do the work of two as one. I saw that in my mom's life. But there's a special grace that God gives. In this story, we see the mom is mentioned a lot, the brothers are mentioned, but dad is never mentioned. And so we either have a widow situation here or a dad who stepped away or is not connected, maybe like some of you who are even listening this weekend, or dads that are there, but you're very distant and you've delegated the role of parenting to the mom in its entirety. But there's hope for single moms in this. And let me just say as an aside to good godly men, last week we talked about how to find the love of your life. When you're looking for the love of your life, don't disqualify single moms. See, I think back to my dad, my my dad who's my stepdad, but he's my father to me. See, he didn't disqualify a single mom, and because of that, he was able to step in and be the, the king in our family that we needed, to be the knight who came in to save his princess. And so you might be called to do that, and so don't overlook them. But most importantly, the bottom line is the family is responsible whether it's our spiritual family or the biological family that you live in we are responsible you are commanded to protect and teach your family look at this verse in deuteronomy that this family would have known very well and these words that i command you today shall be on your heart you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise in other words this verse was kind of the primer on parenting and it says parenting is integrated into our lives it is to be a part of everything we do we are always teaching we're always instructing we're always protecting as parents so god's people are to train and to protect their children. This means that we're reading scripture to them. This means that we're talking with them about spiritual things. To, to boil it down and be very specific, this means that parents are pastors. It is our job to pastor our children as parents. So how are we doing as, at that? And I say we because I'm very much asking myself this same question. But there's a statistic that really bothers me. And here it is, 70% of young adults who grow up in the church, grow up in what would be called Christian homes, when they graduate from college, have no viable signs at all of a faith of their own. In fact, through surveys, they would say that most of all, their faith has just become a philosophy combined with other philosophies to be a pretty good person. And see, it is a high calling of every parent to pastor, train, and protect our children so they will love, adore, and worship Jesus. So how can we do better than 70%? We've got to be able to do better than 70%. And most of all, you've got one or two or three in your family you've got to do a better job with and me as well. So how do we do it? Well, the first thing is we be proactive and not just reactive. To be proactive parents and not just reactive. And this starts, may I say, with dads. Dads, you need to lead in this area. And single moms, if there's not a dad there, you get yourself in a community where men can help to lead and protect you as a family. See, daddies, we have been given an amazing honor to proactively parent our children, to cause them to be little girls like this that say, I was a wall, and because I was a wall, I had peace. I was one with peace in his eyes. He loved me. He was attracted to that. So how do we proactively parent our children? A couple things. We earn our children's, we proactively earn our children's trust. We start depositing in our trust account early, or if you haven't done it to this point, now. 
You start now putting into her trust account. See, the worst situation for a dad to be in is in teen or adult, early uh, adult years to be going, trust me, you don't want to make this mistake. I made this mistake, just trust me. And for the kids to look back and say, trust you? Well, people at work might trust you because you poured into them, but your softball team may trust you, but I don't know you. And so a dad is in a horrible position not to have earned the trust of her children, but instead to have delegated it to others. So dads, we've got to earn the trust of our children. I asked my research assistant, 12-year-old Ellen, to help me with this point. And she gave me a couple of things that every daddy needs to do for their little girl. And I think it's pertinent to little boys as well. The first thing is she said, spend time with me. Spend time with me. If you write that down, underline with. See, spending time near is not the same as spending time with. It means we put away our blackberries, we put away our palm pilots, we put away the football game if that's what's needed, and we spend time with our children. There is a deficit of, of men, daddies, spending time with their children in our society and our culture. Number two, we, he says, she says, he reads books to me. That's something that she enjoys. There may be another activity that you enjoy with your children. I think reading should be one of them. I think in our day and age, we have... We intellectually need to read to one, our children more. But there's this act of reading to your children. Just recently, Isabel and I read through, she's four and a half, we read through the Pilgrim's Progress together, like a 300-page book. We read through it at night. I'm sure she got something through the book, but most of all, what she got is her daddy spending time with her and reading to her and being there with her and connecting with her. The third thing she says is, he goes on dates with me. We talk about dating your spouse, but how about dating your little girl? Take her out on a date every now and then. And, and you need to go out with your little men too. Now don't call it dating because that'll mess them up. So you don't want to do that. <laughs> you want to take them out, roll around in the mud, body slam them, cause some injury and then eat some dirt. That's what you want to do with the boys. But we need to date our children. That's why when Isabel asked me to go on a Starbucks date, I'm there. She'll say, Daddy, I need to go to a Starbucks date. And that, what that means is she needs a $4 chocolate milk. That's what that really boils down to. <laughs> but I do it. I'm there with her. I'm going to take her on as many dates as I can now so that she is ready to be courted later. Number four, he encourages me. He encourages me. She says, he speaks words of life to me. Dads, this is somewhere where we fail often. Dads, we tend to speak words of death. We tend to say, hey, what are you doing wrong? And why do you keep doing that? And why do you disappoint me? And hey, stand up straight and don't, don't fall down. And you did that wrong. But instead, we can speak words of encouragement and words of life to our children. We can tell them what they're doing well. And then when we need to discipline, we discipline from a place of virtue rather than vice. Don't continue to speak of the vice, but to say, hey, here's how we're going to learn kindness. Here is how we're going to learn self-control. Here's some parameters I'm going to put in your life to help you with self-control. And so we encourage her. She says, he encourages me. Number five, when he tells me how pretty I am. This made me realize that, you know, all a little girl or all a woman is, our, our wives or little girls who've grown up a little bit. I remember Julia Roberts in that movie. She said, all I am is a little girl standing in front of a boy who wants to be loved. And that's really what we have here is she's saying, he tells me I'm pretty and we need to do the same thing for our daughters that we would do for our wives. And the number six, she says, when, he, when someone from work gives him a gift and he brings it home to me or he stops and brings me flowers, it shows he's thinking of me. You know, our little girls want to know, daddies, that we're thinking about them. That we're thinking about them during the day that we're planning special events for them because we're proactively 
putting into their trust account. The other way that we can do is we can proactively learn our daughter's love language and speak it. You need to know your wife's love language, and then you need to know your daughter's love language. Because if you don't learn it, someone else will, and it'll probably be some 14-year-old punk. That's probably just, you know, who it's going to be. And so you need to learn it. You need to be speaking it in their lives. You need to be learning your son's love language. What do I need to do with my son to create this man of character that I want him to be? Here's what I learned with 11 years of student ministry experience a few years ago. If you as a guy don't show your daughter attention, she'll find it somewhere else. And that's when things go really bad. They go really bad. So proactively learn your daughter's love language. Proactively train her to be attractive and not attracting. See, there's a difference between being attractive and being attracting. Train to modesty. And dads, you need to be the one who's speaking into this in your lives. And then moms, you can help here too in a big way. Because when you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror, you ask yourself, Am I trying to be attractive? Which is great. We all should be attractive. Everybody should use a brush every now and then. That's a good, good idea. Am I trying to be attractive? Or am I trying to be attracting? Because your daughter sees that. And your daughter mom is looking to you as the example. And she's going, what does modesty look like? What looks like what mom does? And so you ask yourself, am I being attractive or attracting? And then dads, you be someone who can speak into that in your family. You get involved in that. That's a good place to be involved. And then proactively guard your daughter as a prized possession. I know some dads who treat their daughters as if they have no respect of their worth at all. Because here's how I know that. They show them how much they're valuable, that they spend no time with them. And when, a, when somebody wants to take them out, they have no time invested in that. So the daughter comes home and says, hey, I'm going out with Joe. And the dad goes, great, have fun with Joe. He hasn't met Joe and he hasn't introduced Joe to the word violence yet. And there needs to be a point where dad says, Joe, let me explain to you what man strength is. What man strength means is you may be the quarterback of the team, but I can still throw you around like a rag doll. That's what it means, basically. And I'm going to build a wall and I'm going to fortify this door in my daughter's life. And I'm not condoning violence, but I am, okay? (laughs) When you parent from a they need to learn the hard way mentality, here's the truth. You're going to have a lot of hard ways and you're going to parent reactively a whole lot. It's just the truth of the matter. So daddies, we need to decide that we're going to be involved, that we're going to set boundaries. What these men said is, hey, when it comes to text messaging, if that's an open door in your life, then we're going to put up some cedar and we're going to guard that. If that computer in your room all by yourself, young man, is the thing that's going to cause you to disrespect women, because you're going to learn bad habits now and you're going to see them as possessions in an unhealthy way rather than in a, 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 a something to protect and guard, then we're going to take that computer out of your room. We're going to board up that wall. It's not going to be there anymore. See, we start to protect with these boundaries in their lives. Instead of reactive, we're proactive. But you say, is it too late? I mean, Sean, I didn't have that, Dad. I made some unwise decisions. Sean, I wasn't that Dad. And I just, I haven't made good choices. And, and I've, my teenage girls and boys now, they, they wouldn't know what to do if I tried to do this. It's never too late. To those of you who maybe feel like you haven't been as pure as you want to be, Jesus died so that he can make you pure again. For dads who are fearful of what it would look like, I would encourage you, step up to the plate, be a man. Stop being a little boy. Be a man and lead your family. And to moms, I'd say, support him. 
I know he said he was going to do it before. I know he said he was going to step up before. I know he said he was going to lead the family. Support him, encourage him, tell him, I believe in you this time. I know we're going to make it this time. And as some of you who've lost the passion, I'd say it's never too late to rekindle that passion. And your children will see that as well, even grown children. And then just a small word to, to uh, teenagers or children that are here, young adults even. Your parents, I'm telling you this as a daddy, your parents love you more than you can possibly imagine. You say, Sean, you got a four and a half year old. They're easy to love. You don't know. I'm a teenager. My mom and dad, they don't get me. They don't understand me. Let me tell you, every time they look at you, all they see is their baby. And when they see their baby, they want to protect their baby. And so to teenagers especially, your life may get a little bit harder after this message. (laughs) Send the emails to me and then realize that from your parents, that means they see you as a prized treasure to be protected. Let's pray as we respond together. Father, I thank you so much that you give us this example of this book. That, God, we can see a love relationship and also uh, of a spouse, but also, God, the love relationship of men in this little girl's life who wanted to protect her. God, I pray that as men, as moms and, and, and dads, God, that we would just rise up and protect our treasures, that they would be treasures to us, that we would not allow them to be targets to the predators of this world. God, I pray for men here that they would today, that this would be a moment in their lives, a defining moment, and that they would let God, they would let you define their moments, God. And that this would be a defining moment where they begin to lead in their homes. And then, God, I pray for those of us who need to repent, that, God, you would allow us soft hearts to be able to repent of not being pure as we should have been, God, of not protecting like we should have, And that, God, you'd give us a fresh and brand new start today. And I pray that as we respond in Jesus' name. Amen.